But now we're going to study the Bible for a little while. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to Colossians 4. We're continuing our I Heart Colleen series. I Heart Colleen, the idea is that the gospel challenges us to love our city. And we've been looking at a different passage each week. This week we're in Colossians 4. As the gospel challenges us to love our city, we looked at the idea in the first week that no matter where we live, God has sent us there. We looked at that in Jeremiah 29, how to love your city. We talked about the model of the Jews being sent into exile, but still being called to love their city. We talked about how Acts 17 makes it real clear that God decides where we're going to live. He decides the time that we're going to live in, and we want to make the most of that. And because Jesus loves us, we're going to love our city. Well, the second week and the third week, we continued that theme looking at different ways to love our city by by loving our work and our jobs. Joey did a great job looking at Jonah, how God calls us to bring the gospel to our city. This week, we're going to focus on praying. What does it look like to pray for our city? So the title is Pray for Open Doors. Pray for Open Doors. And we're going to be in Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. Colossians 4, 2 through 6. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those black Bibles, and it'll be on page 985 page 985 in the Black Bibles. If you don't own your own paper Bible, we would love for you to have one. They're readily available on phones and on computers now, but we'd love for you to have a paper Bible that you can read at home. You can take that home and keep it. We're going to be on page 985, Colossians chapter 4, 2 through 6. Pray for open doors. Years ago, when I was right out of high school, I ran a teen center. This was a teen hangout, kind of like a boys and girls club, but it was focused on high schoolers. And what we would do is we would have parties and events. We'd have volleyball tournaments. We'd have concerts. We'd have dances. We'd have big events here. And I had a game room and an arcade. The idea was that we'd do you know, good, clean fun and bring youth pastors in to do things and try to keep the kids from getting hurt you know, in wild parties out in the country, which is what they did in Central Texas when I was a kid. We'd get a keg, go out in the middle of nowhere, and bad things would happen. So this was an idea to like help kids do more good, wholesome things, right? So I ran this teen center. We'd have a small staff that would, you know, put on large events. And sometimes after a late party at the teen center, uh, me and the other staff, you know, college kids, we'd all go out to like the late night cafe, right? There are these breakfast places. I don't even remember what it was called, you know, but this breakfast place on the highway, where you could go eat breakfast at midnight, right? You've all done that, I'm sure, had your midnight breakfast. And so we'd have a big event, we'd uh, clean everything up, we'd shut down the teen center, lock the door, and we'd go to the midnight breakfast place. One time we did this, we went to the midnight breakfast place, and we're eating our midnight breakfast, we're having our fried eggs, and our bacon, and our waffles, and our pancakes, and the guy at the uh, counter gets a phone call, and he looks over at us, and he walks over to us, and he's like, uh, is one of you Dave McMurray? And I'm like, uh, yeah, this is really weird. Why am I getting a call at midnight at the breakfast place? Like, nobody even knows I'm here except for my friend sitting at the table with me. He's like, yeah, you have a phone call. So I go over to the phone call, and I pick up the phone, and it's the late-night manager of the hotel that's downstairs from the teen club. Okay, are you following me so far? Teen club's upstairs. There's like an old bar we converted into a teen club. Downstairs, there's a hotel. The late night manager's calling me, Bob. Bob's on the phone. He's like, hey, Dave. Um, yeah, this is Bob. Well, Scott called me from inside the teen club. He's locked in and he can't get out of the door. And I look back at the table. I'm like, look at that. Scott's not sitting at the table with us. 
I was like, okay. So I tell everybody at the table, we all have some, some fun laughter. And I go back to unlock the door. It was one of those doors that had no knob, right? It was just a big door with a lock. You know, you had to have a key. You couldn't unlock it without a key. There wasn't a knob. There wasn't anything on the inside. I'd locked it. I'd left him there. We forgot he was there. I guess he was in the bathroom when we were all leaving. When I come back to unlock the door, thankfully he has a, a personality, a, a sense of humor. So he's like got his face against the glass, banging on the glass like this when, when I came up to let him out. But that's just a little picture of that feeling of being trapped. Have you ever been trapped? Locked in? Or, or maybe locked out of somewhere that you wanted to get into? Again and again, the New Testament, and really the Old Testament follows this theme in a huge way, has this picture that we're locked out of paradise. We're locked out of paradise because of our own doing. Like we left God, Adam and Eve, and all of us after them have said, God, we don't want you. We just want your stuff. And when we did that, we locked the door on paradise. It's called sin. We're separated from God. We're on the outside. You can go back and read the story in Genesis. He says there in Genesis, there's like this flaming sword and this angel barring the doors to Eden, barring the doors to paradise. And then again, again, the story just keeps getting retold that God makes a way to come into paradise, to come into the holy of holies we see in the pictures of the tabernacle and the temple. The door is opened back up for us through what God has done on our behalf. Because of our sin, we're locked out, but because of God's grace, we can be let back in. And Paul is saying here in Colossians 4, pray that that door would be opened to more and more people. Pray. So there's a sense in which we declare the good news of Jesus, say, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Trust him. That's how the door's opened, trusting in Jesus. But Ephesians, and Ephesians 1 is really interesting. Ephesians 1 says there's a sense in which that door's not even opened until the Holy Spirit opens the door in your own heart and mind to see and accept that true story of Jesus dying on the cross for your sins. So Paul says, always pray. Tell, but always pray that God would open the door to people. And that's what this passage is about. Let me read Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. That's our big command for the day. I'm going to read it again. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Pray. That's the big command. And I'm just going to warn you, in like 10 seconds, I'm going to pray for our preaching time, for our study of the Word. But then throughout the morning, I'm going to stop us about three, three times. I'm going to stop us, and we're actually just going to pray in our seats, okay? It's not what we normally do. If that freaks you out, come back again next week. We don't do that every week. But I just didn't want to just talk about prayer. I wanted to get us praying today. So we're going to stop and pray as we work through the text this morning. Uh, I learned from my friends in Guatemala that it's okay sometimes to pray out loud. Um, 
but because we're not used to that, I would just say, when you pray, pray out loud, but pray quietly. Maybe a stage whisper, just murmur to yourself. I've found that it's often easier to concentrate as we pray if we're actually saying it out loud, right? Like, who really talks silently? You don't talk silently to people, do you, right? You talk out loud. So as we pray, I want to encourage you to pray out loud. We'll all be praying at the same time. Um, but, but maybe whisper, don't shout and scream, okay? How about that? Um, so I'm going to start us off. I'm going to pray by myself, but then we're going to have three more options uh, later throughout the sermon for us to all stop and pray as well. Let me pray for our time. God, we pray that you would open the door of the gospel to our city. We pray that you would open the door of the gospel as we look at the text this morning, in this moment, to those that are sitting here right now. Some of us are absolutely committed to you, but we still need you to keep opening the doors of our hearts that we would have a sense of awe at your graciousness, your kindness to us. This news is so good. Help us to not fall out of love with you. Help us to see how amazing you are. Some of us, Lord, are curious or skeptical or unsure. Open the doors of our hearts that we would see, we would hear, we would recognize you and what you've done for us. We pray, God, that you'd be honored in our midst. Help us to see you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the big idea is that we would pray for open doors. Pray for open doors for the gospel. One of the ways that we heart Colleen, that we love Colleen, is we actually pray for Colleen. We pray for ourselves. We pray for the city. We pray for our neighbors. We pray for our friends. Pray for open doors of the gospel. So as I said, verse 2 is kind of the summary. It's a big idea. Pray, be devoted, be watchful. It's like the big umbrella over all of it. And then he's going to kind of break off into two main categories. The section's pretty easily divided into two sections. We see this pattern again and again uh, called Hebrew parallelism. And Paul runs into this a lot in his New Testament writing as well. But Hebrew poetry and Proverbs and in Psalms, often you have this pattern of saying something and then saying it again in another way. So I believe what he's doing here is he's saying, pray for your city, right? Pray for your city. And then there's two ways of praying for your city. There's praying for the preaching of the gospel as an open door. And then there's also a praying for the everyday conversations, right? Kind of two ways that we bring the gospel to bear on our surroundings. One is public proclamation, broadcasting, right? What, what we're doing right now, we send it out on the internet, we write things, uh, we email things, we preach the gospel, kind of formal preaching, Sunday school, those kinds of proclamation issues. And then he's also got this second category where he's like, hey, and also make the most of your time. You'll have these random conversations. You'll have these everyday interactions where you need to make the most of those opportunities. Be gracious, season with salt, right? So here's the outline. Pray for clear proclamation, number one. Pray for gracious conversations, number two. If you've been here long, you know I'm obsessed with three-point sermons, so I'm adding a third bonus point. You ready? Pray for hopeful suffering. Pray for hopeful suffering. It's not really the main point, but he does make a little aside about being locked up in prison. And it's a theme that Paul just can't seem to get away from of God is using his suffering for his glory. So we'll hit that as a third point. So pray for clear proclamation, pray for gracious conversations, and then pray for hopeful suffering. Number one, pray for clear proclamation. We see this in two through four. Again, big idea, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So constantly, just keep praying, keep praying every day, all the time. Verse 3, at the same time, pray also for us. So here's a specific prayer request. Pray for us, that God may open to us a door for the word. So this is Paul the preacher and his apostolic team going around preaching the gospel in new places. He says, hey, we can't do this on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to make this work. So as Christians, we speak the truth, 
But the Holy Spirit has to sink that into people's hearts. So we pray all the time that God would open the door of people's hearts. So at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of a Christ on account of which I'm in prison. So as I said, we'll come back to that being in prison thing in the last point. But I want to focus here on that he's asking for prayer that God would open the door of the word to declare the mystery of Christ. I talk about this a lot because it's one of my kind of favorite oddities of the New Testament. The Roman culture had tons of mystery religions. And they were cults and secret societies where you had to know the right way to talk, the right way to dress. You had to know secret handshakes. It's kind of like what we sometimes talk about of like cliques or inner circles. And they had all these different groups where if you knew the right stuff or the right passwords, then you could break into the inner circle. Then the door to the secret society would be unlocked to you. And what Paul does is he takes that term, mystery, which is like a secret that you haven't figured out yet. And he says, in Christ, it's, it's being revealed to the whole world. So the tightest, most secret, most holy inner circle in the universe is freely opened to you. That's the gospel. So we've all had these groups, right? This job or this friend or this circle that we wished we could be a part of, and we couldn't break in. We couldn't get through that door. Jesus freely opens the door. This mystery is revealed in Christ. Paul says, pray that I would clearly communicate that, how the mystery is opened up to us, that I would declare Christ clearly. He says in verse 4, that I make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. I love this Greek word, phanerao. Um, It can be translated a lot of times as reveal or manifest, but it it really means clarity here. It's translated that way. Clear can, can be translated as expose, right? So when we talk about preaching, we say our habit is to do expositional preaching or expository preaching. I hope you hear that root word there, expose. What we do is we say the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus. So every week we're going to open up the Bible and let the Bible lead us and expose what the Bible says about Jesus, the supernatural book that he's given us, right? Like if we were separated from God and we didn't know him, and we wish that he would talk to us. What would, what would you think would be a, a good way for him to communicate to us? Well, he could come and visit. That's a part of our story, Jesus. And he could give us a book where he speaks to us, right? He did that too. It's called the Bible. So every week we're going to open up the Bible and we're going to listen to what he has to say to us. We're going to expose the text for you. Typically what that looks like is we just will start with the book of the Bible and go through it in order. Right now we're in a little uh, topical series, but even with our topical series, we're going to try to do it in an expositional way where we say, let's let the text lead us. Let's not force our ideas on the text, but let the text tell us who God is and what he has to say. Paul says, pray that I would do that. Pray that I would make it clear. I'm going to ask you guys to pray for me as well. I I grabbed a picture of someone uh, reading a book at night with a flashlight. Um, That's a good image of what we're trying to do. We're, We're trying to clearly show who Jesus is and what the text says to be as clear as possible, exposing the text. Um, our goal is clarity. And so sometimes as we try to clearly communicate the gospel, we might use some of the tools of culture, right? Like the internet, right? We might do crazy things like buy an air conditioning for the building, buy comfortable chairs for you to sit in, right? These are things we're doing to try to make the listening to the word clearer. We're not trying to manipulate you into believing in the gospel, 
And so I just got to kind of try to clarify that, right? Because we're in a weird divisive age in Christianity where we're being kind of pulled apart. We're being ripped apart into the like, we're the sweet, loving, winsome people. We're the truth people. And I think the Bible wants us to hold those things together and be devoted to the truth, but be as kind and as engaging as possible. So we're going to we're going to try to keep holding on to those things, but recognize in today's day and age that for some people, being sweet and winsome might mean being everybody's best friend and never upsetting anybody. And if that's what it means to you, I'm sorry, we can't do that, right? Because we're going to have to keep telling the truth and saying what the scripture says, exposing the word. But we're going to try as hard as we can to be kind to everybody, to be patient, to be gracious, to be loving, to say this is what it says and and to be kind and, and meet people where they're at. So we're going we're gonna to try to kind of hold those tensions of Christianity together, even though I know right now on social media and everybody around you is telling you, you got to make a choice. You've got to either be mean and truthful or sweet and untruthful, right? No, we're going to say, I think we can be sweet and truthful, okay? And, and that's, that's what we're aiming for. And it starts with clear proclamation of the word, clearly showing who Jesus is. Jesus Christ came and lived the perfect life that none of you, none of us could live. He was the perfect Israelite. He was the perfect human. He always loved people the way they should be loved. He always said the hard things that needed to be said and said the sweet things that needed to be said. He did righteous things. He healed people. He helped people. He stood up for what was right. He was what we are supposed to be. He obeyed God's law. He was holy, devoted to his heavenly father. And then he died a sacrificial death. He took our place on the cross. We all deserve death because of our cosmic treason, because of our separation from God. It should be permanent, but God in his graciousness laid our sins upon Jesus Christ on the cross. There's no better story. And it doesn't end there. He rose from the dead. He won. Not only did he absorb the wrath of God on the cross as a sacrifice, but he defeated sin and death. He rose from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He rules the universe. He is king. He's defeated death. That's the story. We want to make that story clear from whatever text we're preaching from in the Bible. Some texts say it explicitly word for word. Other texts just imply the holiness of God, our separation from him, our need of God's graciousness and kindness. But we're always going to come back to trying to clearly proclaim that story. All right, I'm going to stop for a minute and we're going to pray. Um, We're just going to pray right where you are. If you're with a friend or a spouse or a family member, you can pray with your family members. You can just pray right where you are. As I said, you can pray out loud. I think it's easier to concentrate if you just mumble your prayers quietly. Again, don't scream and shout because then other people can't hear themselves think, but you can just kind of whisper or uh, mutter your prayers there quietly where you're at. And I'm going to set a timer for us and give us a couple of minutes to do that. We can just pray where we are. And I've got three things here on the I turned that off before I finished talking. We've got three things here we're going to pray for, that preachers and teachers at GBC would continue to proclaim Christ, number one. Um, number two, that global partners and other churches would continue to proclaim Christ. And then number three, praying for our impact team, that impact Bible clubs will faithfully proclaim Christ. Okay, so just our preachers and teachers here, our other friends globally and around the world, and then specifically our impact teams heading out. So let's pray for these things. I'll give you a couple minutes to pray quietly where you are.
Father, we pray that you would hear our prayers because you're gracious. We know you love us because you sent Jesus for us. We know that you love us because of your great love, not because of anything we've done, as you tell us in Deuteronomy 7, 7 and Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. So Father, because of your graciousness, the seen in Jesus, because you loved us first, help us to love this community and love the world. We pray that you would give us the grace of clear proclamation at this church through our preachers, through our teachers, uh, through all of our opportunities to teach through every form of media. We pray, Lord, for our global partners. We thank you for them. We pray that you would encourage them in the difficulties that they face and strengthen them to persevere. Give them words of clear proclamation of the goodness of Jesus and empower them to make that clear where they are, our sister churches as well, for other churches, that you would raise up new churches to be broadcast centers of Jesus. And we pray finally for our impact teams. Lord, strengthen them. Fill them with your spirit, Lord. Surprise them with your kindness. Help them to communicate the truth of the gospel. Jesus, we thank you that you gave yourself for us, and we pray in your name. Amen. Well, our second point is that we would pray not only for clear proclamation, but also pray for gracious conversation. So that's the kind of parallel thing I was saying. He's got this kind of pray for the open doors, clear proclamation, that I'd declare the mystery clearly, that I'd unpack that mystery, that it'd be clear, that it'd be exposed but also pray for your everyday conversations, right? He, he shifts this way in verses five and six, and he says, uh, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Really rich, really packed text here. Um, he's kind of reflecting the answering each person, reflecting some language in First Peter 3, where he talks about always being ready to give a defense for the hope that you have within you. Um, And we'll talk about this more in the last point about being hopeful in our suffering. But what's going to happen is people are going to see you trusting Jesus in good times and bad. And that's when they're going to want to know, hey, what's up with this Jesus thing? They're going to ask you questions about it. And you want to be prepared to answer for that. You also want to take advantage of situations from an initiative standpoint. Don't just wait for people to ask you questions, but lead with, he says, salty or gracious conversations, right? Salty can be negative and our day and age, but in general, what he's talking about is the the idea that in that day and age, without refrigerators, salt is what preserves things. Salt is also what gives flavor to our food, and he uses the word gracious, so we don't miss it here. So we're praying for gracious conversations. What does that mean? What does it mean for your conversations with people that seem random to be filled with God's grace? Grace is both a general word and a technical word in the Christian tradition. It's a general word in first century Greek and in modern English. And generally it just means niceness, favor, kindness, right? It's a general word. But it very specifically means that our salvation is not something we earned. That God loves us because of his grace, his favor, his kindness, not because we've earned it. We've earned death and separation. We've earned the right to be locked out from paradise. But through the kindness of God, he opens the door through his grace. And so we want our conversations as well to be gracious. And there's a really interesting concept that Paul brings up here about making the best use of the time. Um, The Greek there is really interesting because he says literally buy back the time. Here's the picture. You and I live in a chaotic world. Everything seems out of control. We're suffering. We're confused. Our plans don't work out. Everything looks crazy on the world stage. We're like, what's, what's happening? Everything seems random. It seems like God is out of control. And God says, when you remember me, when you remember the grace of God and Jesus, it's going to enable you to buy back the time from the enemy, 
to redeem the time, to make these moments seem chaotic, to recognize they're not actually chaotic and random, but God is sovereign. Throughout the series, we talked about Acts 17 says, God decided where you're going to live. God decided the time for you to live in. God's given you an assignment. See God as gracious and knowing what he's doing. Like Jesus, who maybe despised the suffering and the difficulty, but with joy engages in the mission that the Father has given him. And we want to live in the same way. Like, okay, every moment, every conversation is a gracious opportunity from my loving Heavenly Father to love people and to listen well and to encourage them to consider Jesus and his kindness. I grabbed a picture of people talking around a water cooler. I think that's the most cliche way of thinking about interacting with outsiders, as he says here, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. What he means is outsiders to the faith. So what does that mean? That means we're already inside, like the door's been opened to us through Jesus. He's like, hey, remember that it's your job to stand at the door and keep opening it for people, right? Focus on those outsiders that aren't inside yet and say, man, I want to invite them in to come and sit at the table with my heavenly father who loves me. So consider every opportunity an opportunity to be gracious, to show the kindness of God. It's, it's not a throwaway. It's not random. Man, I was just listening to my uh, Bible app. I, I do the listening on the Bible app this morning. I was in First Corinthians, uh, not First Corinthians, First Kings 22, and it's uh, a parallel passage in Second Chronicles. And this is a story about God prophesying through a prophet that an evil king is going to be killed, okay? Evil kings turned away from his responsibilities to show people who God is. And God says through this prophet, you're going to be killed. So what does the evil king do? He says, well, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to wear a disguise when I go into battle. That way I can defeat God, right? He won't know who I am. They won't be able to kill me. It's kind of silly, really. Um, So he goes out into battle and they don't know who he is because he's wearing a disguise. And here's what it says. It says, some random archer pulls the bow and fires it at random. At random, y'all, the arrow flies through the air randomly in this world of chaos. And what happens? It kills the evil king. It kills the evil king. What does that show us? That shows us that God is always in control, that God is sovereign. Here's the deal. If you're in rebellion against God, that's the most terrifying thought in the world. But if you've seen the good news of who God reveals himself to be through Jesus, that he runs after you in all of his sovereignty, in all of his massive control of the universe, he comes and he's born as a little out-of-control baby and lives for you and dies for you and pursues you in love through the cross. Then the sovereignty of God is really a sweet thing. So the big point is none of these conversations are random. Your gracious heavenly father is guiding you recognize that, buy back the time, make the most use of the time, be gracious, season your conversation with salt, be interesting, listen well, have an answer. You don't have to have everything figured out, but be ready to point people to who Jesus is. All right, so we're going to pray for three things. I think we can often fall into sarcasm and pride and cynicism, right? We kind of emotionally protect ourselves and we try to act like we're too cool and we're too smart and that does not make our conversation very gracious. So we've got a few different prayers I want us to pray here. A couple of them are repentance prayers, right? We want to turn from bad, non-gracious conversations. I want us to repent of the fear of hard conversations. I'm a people pleaser. 
I'm a harmonizer, so I fear difficult conversations. God and his uh, sense of humor called me to be a pastor. So we want to repent of our fear of hard conversations. We also want to repent of our prideful or cynical words. And then I've got kind of two positive prayers, three and four. Praise God for arranging these moments. Praise God that he's in charge, that that you are an ambassador and he sent you to these unplanned moments and he's got you there for a reason. And then finally, ask God for for gracious answers so he would give you gracious words. So I'm going to give us a couple minutes to pray through these prayers and then we'll finish up. Father, we pray for gracious conversations. Send us as your ambassadors. Help us to recognize that every moment belongs to you and that you've sent us to the time and the place that we live in. Give us answers. Lord, help us uh, to repent of our fear of hard conversations and trust that you're in control. Help us, Lord, to repent of our, our cynicism and our pride. Help us to recognize that it is by your grace that we can have anything useful to say. God, we praise you that you've set these moments up and we pray that you would give us gracious things to say, that you would make us representatives of your kindness and you'd speak through us. And we pray this for Jesus' sake, amen. So our final point, as I said, is the bonus point, okay? So I'll try to make this a little bit quick. It's a big point uh, and it's really a small aside in this passage. So it's not the main point of this passage, right? The main point of this passage is really about clear preaching and gracious conversations. Uh, But he also makes this little aside that, oh, by the way, I've been thrown in prison for preaching the gospel, right? So we see this in verse three, hopeful suffering. He's speaking specifically 
of hopeful suffering because he's in prison. Now, I can't get all that out of this text. What we're doing is we're kind of tapping here. This is a little more topical. We're tapping on this topic that Paul hits again and again and again throughout the New Testament. He's always talking about how he's in prison, but God's going to work through that anyway. From the outside, Paul looks like a loser because he's struggling and he's suffering and he's sick and he's in jail and he's in chains. Paul says, no, God, God works through our suffering, right? Like, remember Jesus. Remember our king? He suffered for us. He suffered and died for us. And so if we're going to follow Jesus, we're often going to look like Jesus. And so this can be a little confusing for us because sometimes our suffering is very specifically suffering for speaking about Jesus, very specifically. In our world, we don't suffer too much for that, right? Culture has shifted a little bit where it's getting harder and and harder to just assume that people have a, a good view of Christianity, but it's nowhere near what our brothers and sisters are suffering in other countries, right? So we want to recognize, yeah, the, the tables are turning, things are shifting a little bit, but, but man, we still have it pretty easy. But also, not just suffering for speaking about Jesus, you can just suffer because you live in this world. This is a world of suffering. So how can our suffering be hopeful? Well, it's hopeful in two ways. We are hopeful in our suffering because we know in Christ someday all things are going to be healed. Revelation 20 and 21 is clear about that. He's going to wipe away every tear. There will be no more suffering. Romans 8 is very clear about that. The, the, the season we walk in now, we're groaning and we're longing for the completion, for the ending of everything, okay? So that future we look forward to is the complete healing of all suffering. So we're hopeful that he really will clean everything up, restore all suffering. We can also be hopeful that he might heal us here and now. Sometimes we see this in the ministry of Jesus. When Jesus was walking through this world, he just healed people left and right. Did he heal everybody physically everywhere he went? Anybody know the answer to that? No, he actually didn't. But he healed a lot of people, right? Why? Because he's gracious. <laughs> so, so that's the confusion we have. A lot of times we, we split off in one or two directions with this. We're like, because I love Jesus, if I have enough faith, I must be healed. Jesus has to do that because he heals everybody all the time that has faith. Well, no, sometimes he didn't. But we also don't want to go off the other direction of like, no, I'm a stoic and I don't believe he ever heals. I got to wait for all that in heaven. No, sometimes he heals us now, right? So we can always pray, Jesus, take away my suffering, please, now, because you're gracious. Sometimes he says, I'm going to be enough for you. This suffering won't end, but I'm going to walk with you through the suffering. So the letter that goes into the most details about this in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians. The entire book of 2 Corinthians is Paul's philosophy of ministry that God meets us in our suffering and he's given the gospel to us in jars of clay. So we have these cracked, broken bodies that get more cracked and more broken every day. And as people see us depending on Jesus in our suffering, the grace of Jesus becomes more real. And so our suffering is hopeful. We know, hey, Jesus might heal me next week, but even if he doesn't, Jesus is good. And he can use my suffering to help other people see how good he is as I walk in dependence on him. As Paul talks about, again, in 2 Corinthians, got this thorn in the flesh and God told me I'm not going to heal it because I'm going to let you learn to depend on me more through this thorn in the flesh. So we, we always ask for healing. We always ask for the end of our suffering because God's gracious and, and we're like little children and he's our heavenly father. We can always ask him to end our suffering. Sometimes he says not yet, but it's coming. Not yet, but, but it's coming. So verse three says, at the same time, pray for us. God could open a door to the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. 
The Greek word for prison, same word for chains, uh, same word for being bound, okay? It's a general word that can be translated in a lot of different ways. Here's a great cross-reference in 2 Timothy 2.8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. I hope you feel that. You are bound. I am bound. We're all bound by different circumstances. Some of you are sick. Some of you are broken. Some of you are depressed. Some of you are in financial difficulty. You are bound physically in all sorts of different ways. But the Word of God is never bound. So you can be hopeful in your suffering. God can work through your suffering. And we're headed towards an ultimate end of all suffering. So that's the direction we're going. But even if it doesn't end tomorrow... God can use it to display his glory to more people. I found a picture of an eagle bound in chains. And when you see this great glorious bird in a trap, like that's, that's not the way things are supposed to be, right? And so I'd, I just want to encourage you, like there is a sense in which your suffering, your pain is not the way things are supposed to be. And so our story begins with paradise, our story ends with paradise. We're living in the in-between times where we feel chained, but, but in our chains, God's word is, is never chained. God's word is never bound, and people can still see the freeing gospel in our suffering and in our, our difficulties as we limp and as we, we hobble forward. One of my favorite places that Paul talks about this is in Philippians 1. In Philippians 1, he's again in jail. Paul's always getting thrown in jail. He's in jail and he's like, yeah, I think I'm going to get out. I don't think I'm going to get killed. I could get killed. And he's like, of course, I'd rather get killed because then I'm in heaven, right? And so like really honest people struggle with this, right? Because it is actually better to be in heaven. But, but here's the thing. God gets to decide that. We don't, we don't get to decide that. So that's where we get confused, right? If we have a friend that's suicidal, we're like, oh, no, no, no. It's better to stay here. No, it's actually better to be in heaven. But we don't get to make the choice. So as Christians, I would say, if you're feeling suicidal, if you're considering taking your own life, don't do it because God actually has something good for you here. He wants to use you to bless others, even in your suffering. Talk to me, talk to a friend, reach out to a mental health worker of some kind. Please don't take your own life because the gospel says, no, God's got you here for a purpose, even in your suffering, even in your pain, even in your difficulty. Paul says, oh yeah, I'd rather die and go to heaven, but I think it's God's plan for me to stay here and give you more fruitful labor, to spend myself for you the way Jesus spent himself for us. So our suffering can be hopeful. So one of the best model prayers for us in suffering is Jesus facing the cross, right? Because if anyone was a righteous sufferer, it was him. And Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, if there's any other way, Father, take this cup of suffering from me. Heal me, stop it, free me now. If there's any other way, yet not my will, but your will be done. So that's the tension we walk in our prayer. We, we pray, God, you're merciful, take my suffering away, but ultimately help me to trust and hope and be patient in your will being done. Of course, I'm gonna run to you like a toddler, because that's how Jesus told me to run to you, Father. You're my daddy. Fix me, help me, heal me. But I'm also going to trust you. You're bigger than me. You understand things better than me. You, you can work through this suffering. 
So we go to God with these open hands of faith in our, our prayer. We pray for healing. We pray for the situation to be resolved. And we also say, but I, but I trust you. If it's not going to be resolved this week, use me in it. Make my suffering beneficial to others. We're going to spend some moments praying then. Three things we can pray in our suffering. Number one, ask God to remove our suffering because he's gracious. Ask him. You can ask him. He's gracious. It's never wrong to ask. Number two, ask God to give us patience and hope in his will. He doesn't always say yes. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. We're all headed to ultimate healing, but we may not be headed to healing this week. So we ask him, but we also ask for patience and hope in his will. And then finally, ask God to use our suffering to point others to Jesus. God, will you use my suffering to help others to see the hope that I have in you, that I would be a jar of clay, this treasure would be in me, like 2 Corinthians says, like a jar of clay that's holding a treasure. So we'll pray for these things for just a moment. Father, hear our prayers because you are gracious. Thank you that you gave yourself to us in Jesus. We pray that you would relieve and end our suffering. We thank you that we're all headed to that future. We pray that it would end now, but we also pray, Father, that you give us patience and trust in your will being done. We pray that your will would be done. We pray, Lord, that you would use our suffering, our difficulty, our pain, whatever it might be, different for everyone in this room. But all of us suffer, Lord, that you would use our suffering and our difficulty to help other people see Jesus, that your kindness would be revealed as we learn to trust you more and more in the ups and downs of our difficulties. God, we thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.
So the three big ideas are that we would pray for clear proclamation. That's a, a major open door, right? That the church would just be faithful in proclaiming the word. Local churches, uh, missionaries abroad, everywhere in between, clear proclamation. Uh, the second idea was gracious conversations. Your conversations are not accidents, but God is going to use you to open doors as you pray and ask him to be faithful by his spirit in those conversations, that you'd be gracious with your words. And then finally, hopeful in our suffering. We're all sufferers. We can either suffer by faith or without faith. Uh, So pray that God would open doors through your own suffering. As we think about the idea of God opening doors, uh, it's it's a paradox, right? There's a sense in which uh, we open the door as we believe. Ephesians 1 sets this up. We, We open the door as we believe the word. We're a part of what God's doing. We're we're brought into his family. So just trust him and believe. But there's also this idea that we have to pray for God to open those doors, that his Holy Spirit has to be at work to open our eyes, to open our hearts, to be receptive to him, to break down our walls of pride. So the rest of Ephesians 1 talks about it in that sense, that, that God had to reach out and grab hold of us for us to believe. And so I want to end with this, this last picture. As we pray for open doors of the city, I, I just want to appeal to those of you that are here that maybe haven't opened the door yet, in your own life to Jesus. This was a passage that was profoundly meaningful to me as uh, a young man when I first came to Christ. In Revelation chapter 3, the Apostle John is writing these letters to churches in Revelation. And in Revelation 3, there's the setup where there seems to be this church that thinks they've got it all under control and they don't actually need God. They think they've saved themselves. And God says, because you're lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold towards me. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. I I came to realize that's who I was. I I thought I was saved, but I didn't really love Jesus. And God began to break my heart. And in Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, here I am. I'm standing at the door and knocking. If anyone would open the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is saying, I'm just right here. I'm knocking on the door of your heart. Just, just open the door. So on the one hand, there's this sense that, that only God can open that door, right? And we pray that God would sovereignly open doors to hearts, our own hearts and others. But I want to end with this. God's knocking at the door of your heart. All you have to do is say, I recognize I can't do it. I need you. I'm a sinner. I've strayed. I need you, Jesus. Come into my life. Save me. Forgive me. Transform me. I would love to talk to you about that if that's what's going on in your own mind and heart right now. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you are the God of open doors. We thank you, Father, that you're the one ultimately that opens these doors, but you continue to invite us to let you in. So God, I pray for all of us that you would help us to see you, to run to you, to open the door of our hearts, to say, I need you, I love you. I recognize that you've given yourself to me. We pray that you'd be honored in our midst. We pray that you'd be honored in our city. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.